We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall linger to caress him while we breathe our evening prayer. When a year ago we gathered, joy was in. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I read through around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my main source material. If you're just joining me in this podcast, uh, you're in luck. I'm beginning a brand new series. Um, So I'm not going to necessarily say you should go back and listen to the old episodes because we'll be starting something completely new here. But still, you know, I encourage you to, to check out some of my earlier series. I've been really sort of stuck for quite a while in in the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. I think I did the Harlem Renaissance. I did uh, Norris, Frank Norris, and Jack London. So I've kind of been stuck in that period of time. And this series, I'm going to go back. I was actually trying to find a, a female writer that would be interesting, particularly one I haven't read before that I could start to sink my teeth into. So I have decided to begin a series looking at Louisa May Alcott's Little Women books. This actually consists of three novels, Little Women, Little Men, and Joe's Boys. And in some ways, we're really talking about, it's like four novels in two sets. And the way I'll explain that is, like Little Woman, Little Women was actually published in two volumes initially. So like the first half came out and that covered about a year in the life of, of these girls and their family. And then we had a second volume, which dealt with a lot of time. I think that one covered almost nine years or something. And that and then with an up with a epilogue that took on another five years or so. So it's a big stretch of time. But that's where we really see what happens to these girls as they grow up. Now, Little Men is about a six month period of time at the school. One of the characters from Little Women establishes with her her husband. And it's about the boys that study at that school and some family members who are there, too. And that just covers a six-month period of time. So it's mostly about knowing who those people are. And then the third novel, Joe's Boys, is kind of like the second part of Little Women in that it explores really what happens to these people as they grow up. So it's like 10 years later, and they come and visit, and they tell their stories of what happens, and and we learn what happens to those adults. And in a way, it's kind of interesting because you see the different challenges faced by men and women as they grew up, the different expectations, and the difficulty of being an individual uh, in a in a world with a lot of social pressure and ideology about what about what it means to be a man or or a woman, so I almost think of this as as two stories that are connected with some overlapping characters that are kind of structured the same way, or you could think of it as kind of four novels. But the way it got published is not it's published now is these three separate novels, um, but I think the overall structure is more parallel. Now, when Melissa May Alcott published the first volume of Little Women, she was 36 years old and already an established writer. So this wasn't by any means her first writer. Uh, she was from the second generation of a family of transcendentalists. And she is now buried at the Concord Sleepy Hollow Cemetery alongside some of the most famous transcendentalist writers and some other important writers. So in that cemetery, you have Henry David Thoreau, 
Louisa May Alcott. Hawthorne is there. And who am I missing? Emerson is there too. And there's some other less well-known writers. I don't think there's anyone else that's in the Library of America that's buried there, but there's those four. And, you know, I'm thinking, and I won't decide now, but I'm thinking about doing an entire series on the Sleepy Hollow writers. Unfortunately, that would take, well, Emerson, they have four volumes. Hawthorne and Thrower are each, two each. And then Alcott, there's this one and another one. So it would be like over a half a year project if I wanted to do that. So I'm not saying it's likely, but it's if there's interest, I, I may do that. Um, but anyways, let, let's start by talking about transcendentalism. The, the movement was sort of dying down by the time Elcott was writing. It's more it's seen as kind of an antebellum movement. But, you know, she was certainly influenced by that. And she, it's never mentioned, as far as I know, in this. I, I recently rewatched the 95 or 94 version of the film, the one with uh, Claire Danes and Susan Sarandon. And that version they do mention at one point like my family is transcendental i think it's joe says my families are transcendentalists i don't remember it being mentioned in little women precisely but it's certainly in alcott's mind and it's a big part of her the influence on her as she grew up now the major beliefs of the transcendentalists are primarily in the importance of the individual over the institution and specifically the tendency of institutions to corrupt individual goodness so there is a tension between the individual and the institution, and it's it's not a good one. In some ways, it builds off of some of the ideology of separate spheres in this idea that kind of the outside world, the world of business, capital, and government is sinful and horrible and bad, and that's why kind of men go out there, and that's why we need women in the home to provide like a, a preservation, a place to preserve goodness in this horrible world. But the central conceit of, the, of separate spheres idea is that the institutions out there are are bad they're they're against human nature and human human individual goodness um now i as far as i know the transcendentalists, like some of them were all right feminists so they didn't accept separate spheres fully um, although there were some women writers who accepted that like Catherine beecher nevertheless this idea that there's this tendency of institutions to corrupt individual goodness therefore we need to go through a process of finding this individual goodness and cultivating it and not letting institutions make us bad and also trying to make institutions better so th there's a big connection between the transcendentalist and reform movements because this idea that yeah institutions are bad but we can make them better we can make them more reflective of our individual goodness certainly that transcendentalist and we get this from their name sort of that there's this external realm of ideas as a source of truth and again this is saying it's not tied to our institutions it's there's something transcendent and that's where truth comes from and we have to get there kind of as individuals we can't it can't get come to us through these structures we build up in our society. There's certainly a, a kind of a, a utopianism tied to idealism. And here, I mean, idealism, not in just positivity, although many of them did have high hopes for the future. Idealism in more the Hegelian sense, this idea that it's ideas that lead to social transformations and material change, right? So... Um, this was Hegel's idea, right? Like we, we go through this dialectical process of, of changing our ideas in our mind, and then that will lead to new social institutions and changes. Now, in some ways, the intellectual movement can be looked at as this transplantation of German idealism to the American soil. 
But American writers changed it enough, especially with this focus on individualism. And there's a lot of interest in like Native American religions and ideas that got into transcendentalism. So that's going to have a, I think especially the strong individualism is something that German idealists didn't, weren't as comfortable with. Now the movement started to go into decline in the 1840s and suffered its most severe blow with the death of Margaret Fuller. Now, Margaret Fuller, I don't know what's going on with the Library of America. I'm, I'm a real supporter of them. I'm doing this whole podcast. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a, impartially a love letter to the great work they do. Um, and pretty soon I would hope to have all of the, all the volumes, all over 300 now. But not one on Margaret Fuller. Now, maybe they didn't get to, get to it yet, but it seems a big oversight. It's, it's, so I wonder if they're having rights problems, but everything should be public domain with someone who died in 1840. So I don't know what's holding up the Margaret Fuller volume, but I, I hope they get to it soon because they should be there. Really one of the most amazing women writers. You know, that would have been my first volume probably if, if, if it existed. Anyways, Elcott had, Louisa May Elcott had started writing when she was around 17. She wrote her first novel, The Inheritance. Um, Now, what am I trying to say here? Oh, I know. What I'm trying to say is when Margaret Fuller dies in 1850, so the movement transcendental stress decline in the 1840s, but really it's with when Margaret Fuller dies in 1850, a shipwreck off the coast of New York, I believe it was. That's when the movement started to decline. And Alcott just started writing at that point. Um, she would start publishing soon after. And as I said, Little Women, although most people know Elcott from Little Women, it's, you know, she had already written a lot of books. In fact, she didn't really want to write it initially. She was, it was suggested she writes a kid's book or a book for girls. And she said, well, I don't have girls and I'm not married. And of course, she never married, didn't have kids. So she had to really go off her own childhood. Now, what she's going to do is she's going to take a lot of her experiences and all the characters in Little Women have their parallels in Elcott's own life, or at least most of the major ones do. But she moves it up, so she sets it in the 1860s in experiences that the girls reading this book would have perhaps remembered, right? So girls, maybe 15, 16, picking up little women for the first time in, in 1868. You know, maybe had a father who was off at war and knew that when she was a little bit younger, maybe Amy's age. Um, but anyways, Alcott's mother, Ab May Elcott was an important social reformer. Uh, her father, Amos Elcott, was a peddler who turned into an education and an education reformer, and he wrote a book on education. And education is going to be a major theme in all three of these novels, um, particularly in the second volume in, in Little Men, because that's all about life at a school. But education is filtered throughout the whole thing. It's not a didactic novel by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of lessons, but it's not ever like a didactic novel in that there's kind of this imposition of this is the right way to live, right? Everything is contextualized based on these individual girls and their own experiences and their own feelings and what is why Mrs. Marsh is presented, I think, as a radical figure here is because she's able to craft lessons based on her experience and based on the experiences of the girls individually. So she doesn't say that this is just the way it is because the Bible says so or something. She is really attuned to the individual differences among her, her children. 
So that's why I don't want to call it a didactic novel. It's not throwing down lessons from on high, even if there are moral, moral lessons and, and suggestions about a good life sprinkled throughout, throughout the novel. And in education is one place we see this being confronted. Now, all of her three surviving sisters, Alcott's, Louisa May Alcott's three surviving sisters have parallels in Little Women. Now, Anna Alcott had a life very much like Meg's in the story. Dying at a young age. No, sorry, not no, it's Beth that dies. So Anna Alcott had a life much, much like Meg, the oldest and the one who gets married. It's Elizabeth Alcott, who actually has the same name, Beth, Elizabeth, Beth. She dies at the age of 22, so that's paralleling Beth. And I'll go over these characters if you haven't read or, or seen any of the adaptations. They're pretty memorable, so but I assume most of you maybe have a kind of an, you know, a rough idea of who these, these four girls are, but I'll, I'll get to them shortly. But Elizabeth Alcott is her real, Alcott's real, or Beth is parallel to Beth, and she really dies. And Beth dies, of course, in this novel. May Alcott, her younger sister, became a notable painter, and the character of Amy is actually an acronym of May. All right, let's just switch the letters around. So May Alcott's is Ill, Ill, actually illustrated the additional version of Little Women, and you actually have it here. If you pick up the Library of America version, you have May Alcott's drawings uh, in the novel. And depending on the version you buy, you can get those, those pictures. They were in the original and they're in this, this version. So in, as I suggested before, in 1867, Alcott is approached to write a girl's book, a book for girls. But not having children, and Alcott never married, she wasn't sure that she could do this. Um, now, she wrote these books very fast. You know, I, I think at one point she was like writing like a chapter a day. So th these were writ quick, written quickly. But she didn't have like girls that she could set. She didn't really understand girls of the, of the 1860s as a sense I get. So she had to kind of go back to her own childhood and just kind of draw them into the future. And so that's what she does. She makes a few important changes. The most important was putting the setting in the Civil War. And, and this is an important setting because it, it lets them deal with this question of loss and this threat of, of losing a father in a war, something that... And that's important because this is what girls, you know, in the 18, late 1860s would have remembered as a very memorable part of their growing up. Many of them spent many of their years with their fathers away. You know, when you went to war in the Civil War, it was, you know, they'd be gone for three years. It's not like one-year tours or something where they could come back on leave. You, you were gone f for a long period of time, and then many died. Um, you know, battles in the Civil War had like 30% casualties, so if they came back, they often came back wounded or sick, and more people died of illness than of, on the battlefield. So the threat of losing a loved one was very real, and it's something girls reading at the time would have known about. The story of daughters together with a mother facing the difficulties of life while men were off to war would have been common. Now, Little Women is a long novel. It's around 500 pages in the Library of America version, making it, I think, the second or third longest novel I've looked at in this series. Maybe only The Octopus and Type or in Marty are longer. But I do think we can look at it as divided into two, two shorter novels. Um, 
one is on a single year introducing the characters and the second shows how these characters become women and in the same way that little men introduces a set of characters and then Joe's boy shows how they become men so let's let's go through the girls first now this is a wonderful novel by the way it's, it's you don't have to be a kid to appreciate it and, and read it it's it's got a, something for everyone to be really cliche about it but it's just a beautiful wonderful novel and it's very touching and you really fall in love with these characters so but let's just talk about the girls and we'll talk about other characters as, as they come in uh, the first the oldest is Meg Meg Marsh the, the Marsh family of course so you have Mrs. Marsh she's kind of holding the fort while the father is away at war he's a preacher he's not a, like a soldier he's, he's kind of going as the chaplain and when he comes back he, he takes on that role as a chaplain the family is experiencing financial difficulties. I think they lost some money even before the war, but now they don't have the father's real income, just whatever trickles in from the front. So they're they're kind of struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, they're middle class, but they're kind of living. You know, they, they have a, like a, they were established middle class, but they kind of had this falling down a little bit because of financial difficulties in the war. So they talk a lot, a lot about poverty and may say, well, they're not that poor. And there's poorer people in the story around them. But from the perspective of what these girls remembered, they, they are feeling poor. OK, so the oldest girl is Meg. She's 16 when the novel begins. Um, she's maybe the most institutionalized, the most established, the one who follows the most traditional path for women. Um, now, not entirely. She is going to have her own individuality worked into it. Um, but she's maybe the closest to doing what's expected of her and she's going to be the first to marry the first to have kids and she's kind of the pioneer into womanhood of, of all these girls but she's the one who does it in the safest most conventional way one year younger than meg maybe a little bit more than a year is joe joe marsh so she's 15 when the novel begins joe is is a writer and she's already a writer by the time when the novel begins. She has these manuscripts lying around and she writes for that kind of their own, the family newsletter and things like that. And she writes plays. So she's an active writer. And very soon she, she it's clear she wants to become a writer and she wants to make that her career. She's the closest to Louisa May Alcott herself. And she's modeled off of her. And she eventually marries. So it's not that she follows a fully untraditional route. She doesn't do what like Alcott did and, and didn't marry at all. But Joe marries not who she's expected to marry. So she, she marries the ideal man in many ways, um, who is much older than her. But he's the true model of what a, a marriage should be based on. In fact, when I was thinking about Joe's character, I thought a lot about Mary Wollstonecraft and how Mary Wollstonecraft talked about how important it is that women are educated and also how important it is that women marry for friendship and, and not kind of fall into the trap of sentimental novels and marrying someone because he's dashing or romantic or or because of passion and love. That, that That's not going to give you long-term happiness. You should marry a friend or an intellectual equal. And so she married... Wollstonecraft married the much older man, um, Godwin, who I've seen pictures of. He, I mean, he's not the most dashing person, and he was like a radical and kind of troublemaker. But they had a very strong relationship until, of course, Wollstonecraft died in childbirth at a, at a young age. But so go read Vindication of the Rights of Women, and she talks all about this stuff 
in, in that novel or in that that book it's not a novel um so next we have the 13 year old beth who is often sickly throughout much of the novel even in the beginning before she first falls ill she's kind of sick she's very shy she's not comfortable with other people she's not as much like playing with the neighbor boy and things like that she, she's just more in the home all the time she's she's being educated at home now meg and joe are already gone in the work workforce beth and amy the two younger kids are still being educated but beth is doing it in the home at the beginning because she's so shy and um her her talent is music and then we have amy who's 11 when the novel begins her education is pretty fragmented at this point in fact it's something that Alcott makes a point of in the early parts of the novel that her it's kind of a faulty education she can't spell well for instance now she's at a schoolhouse at the start of the novel but she's taken out of that and she's also homeschooled um, by you know pretty quickly in the novel she's an artist and even at a young age she's showing this artistic development now all of these girls have their own individual characteristics there's not a single path that they're growing into so little women the title seems to imply that you know that they're going to become women someday but it's an open question about what type of women they're going to be and what that actually means and for some it they won't really achieve womanhood because they'll die and that that's something that families faced all the time you know nope. families in those days couldn't expect all their kids to live into adulthood you know, or, or pa even or past young adulthood disease was common enough that that people often died and that's something everyone faced so that's a very true to life loss um, now could Beth would Beth have been a famous musician maybe we never really see her art develop the way it does with Joe and Amy but they all have their different paths and their different ways of reaching womanhood and I, I think it's really brilliant what Elcott does with these characters um, now we're given an open opening epigraph from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And the very first chapter actually is um, the kids playing Pilgrim's Progress, like a good Puritan style game. Now, of course, the original Pilgrim's Progress was about a spiritual journey. It was a, it was a book of the Protestant Reformation. Um, a Puritan book, I think. Yeah, Bunyan must have been a Puritan. Now, here we have a different sort of journey that these girls go on. And so I think that's what Elcott is doing here. Now, she calls the, the novel Little Women or Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. So, again, she, there's this focus on the individuality of these four girls. It's not the, the Marsh girls, right? All right. So that, that kind of introduces uh, the characters and tells us a lot about what the novel is going to be like. This novel sometimes may seem like to modern readers as like a series of situation comedy episodes. Um, and you might be frustrated coming back to it now if you don't have like a plot established and then each chapter kind of gets through it. There, there is a plot and there's a path that these characters follow. But everything is so episodic early on, right? There's like first there's Christmas and then Joe and Amy have a fight and then Beth is frustrated about her piano and then what else happens you know meg goes to like a dance or something i mean it's and then at the end of each there's like a kind of a lesson or a moral in fact sometimes it's right at the end of a chapter something will happen it'll be addressed or redressed or a consequence of that conflict will emerge and then mrs marsh will give some kind of 
advice after it. So in that sense, it kind of feels like how situation comedies were, especially like in the 80s and 90s, where you'd have like a family and there'd be some crisis and then, you know, different episodes would focus on different characters, but there'd always be kind of this moral lesson at, at the end. Now, of course, the ch you know, this co this comes forth in these novels long before it's ever a situation comedy on TV. So it's it's more likely that it was well, certainly that, you know, these situation comedies copied things like Little Women, not the other way around. But the lessons there, there are moral lessons, but they're not so didactic. That that's the main point I want to make. Often the educator in the scenes is Mrs. Marsh, but she doesn't tell the girls what to do or what to think. She might say, well, this is a struggle that I went through and this is what I found worked for me. Or sometimes she really realizes that her daughters are all different. Sometimes there's a more Socratic tone to it where she's kind of asking questions and trying to lead them to a conclusion, but she lets them come to those little conclusions themselves. And I, I think this is what Alcott thinks a better education is than what most kids are, are getting. In fact, she makes a point of pulling one of her one of the girls out of school early on in the story. Okay, so let's just jump in and talk about the first, I think, eight chapters. We'll get us to about 100 pages, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, first chapter, chapter one, Plain Pilgrims. So it's Christmas time, and the Marsh family is coming to terms with a summer without or a year with, you know, a whole year without her father, without its father. Um, and he's been gone for a while. So he's been gone, you know, at least since the summer. He's serving as a chaplain in the Union Army during the Civil War. And the girls, they talk about what they want for Christmas, you know, as, all, as people will do shortly before Christmas begins. They're expecting big gifts. But then they think about their poverty and they decide to pool their money to get something nice for, for their mother. So the very opening pages, we get a, a, a description of their, of their generosity. And we also get a description of the four girls. Um, quote, Margaret, the eldest, was of the four, was 16 and very pretty, being plump and fair with large eyes, plenty of soft brown hair, a sweet mouth and white hands, of which she was rather vain. 15-year-old Joe was rather tall, thin and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were always very much in the way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes, which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was one of her beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and did not like it. Elizabeth, or Beth as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of 13 with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression, which was seldom disturbed. Her father called her Little Tranquility, and the name suited her excellently, excellently for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. Amy, though the youngest, was the most important person, in her own opinion at least, a regular snow maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair curling off her shoulders, pale and slender and always carrying herself like a young lady mindful of her manners. What the characters of the Four Sisters were will leave that to be found out. End quote. Yeah, I quoted that. So things. we get this description. It's a whole page long. It's a description of the girls. And then the author tells you at the end, like, this is not their character. Their character is not determinable from how they see, how they look. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff now. But, you know, so often still in literature you you know the what someone looks like implies a character often and sometimes this is just 
like the motif for the you know kind of a meme thing so everyone understands you know that kind of character will be that way right there's certain archetypes i guess but alcott's rejecting that right there saying you got to wait to find out what the character is and, and, and listen to the girls and, and spend some time with him before you know that now they get a letter from their father the importance of letters during the civil war it's big. Now, this was one of the, the most literate army in world history up to that point. The Americans who fought in the Civil War. And as a consequence, we have all these letters. And historians have done a wonderful job reading these letters and dissecting them and learning about the, the, what they thought about the war, how they thought about their family, how they faced death and suffering, and all these things. And um, what's her name? President of Harvard, uh, Drew... Faust, I think, uh, yeah, I think her name's, it's, it's, I think it's Faust. She wrote this book called The Republic of Suffering, which is all about like looking at these letters and trying to understand how these men and these families face death during the Civil War. Anyways, letters were in a way, really important way that these families communicated with each other during these very long periods away from the family. It's not like the Revolutionary War where, you know, yeah, you had this very small continental army that was gone for a while, but most people were in the militias and they might fight for a while and then go back to their farms. During the Civil War, people were gone for a long, prolonged periods of time. Now to cheer them up after hearing from their father, they're all kind of sad, the girls decide to play this old game, Pilgrim's Progress. And we get a lesson here about the importance of play. I think that's always important to remember. Whether you're a child or an adult, play is an important thing to engage in. Don't neglect it in your life. You know, you'll end up like Jack Torrance. Next, chapter two, uh, A Merry Christmas. So it's Christmas morning and like the very next day and the Marsh family shares their breakfast with the poor German immigrant neighbors. And they'll be like an important side character in the story later on. And that evening they put on one of their plays. It's it's common way that these girls play, especially in the winter. They perform, they've often performed these plays written by Joe. Joe writes them and then they perform them and, and they kind of do these theatricals, they call them. They talk about their neighbor, Mr. Lawrence, who's who's in a bigger house. He's rich. He still has a lot of money. And he's rumored to keep his grandson kind of locked up in, in the house. And you know how girls will do this or young people in general, not just girls. Well, gossip and rumor about their neighbors who they think to be a little bit odd. And so our initial impression of Mr. Lawrence is that he's a bit weird. Um, but we learn later on that he's perfectly normal and loving and kind and, you know, a perfectly decent rich guy. Whatever you're, you know. I, I'm kind of a lefty, you know, not a big fan of the bosses, but, you know. Alcott here certainly presents Lawrence as not a bad guy at all. Chapter three, the Lawrence boy. In this chapter, the Marsh girls meet Laurie or, or Teddy. His name's Theodore Lawrence. This is the kid, Mr. Lawrence's grandson. So he takes the name kind of Laurie because he doesn't really like Theodore that much. And Joe will sometimes still call him Teddy. But usually he's called Laurie, and that's how he's known throughout most of the novel. Laurie's just a little bit older than Joe, but they're basically the same age. And they're the ones that were, they're supposed to get together, right? And the fact that they don't is, is important, and important to the plot and important to the development of these characters. Again, I think Alcott is, is trying to uh, hack these conventions of what the reader's going to expect. And what the reader expects is Joe and Laurie will get together. Um, 
and that's not what happens. Um, in fact, they're not right for each other at all, is Elcott's point. But they can be good friends, right? So it's not all about relationships. Not every time a boy and a girl gets together is because they're going to get married someday. You know, sometimes they can just be friends. They have a lot in common in that they're both, you know, they're both more intellectual. Lori's getting ready to go to college, you know, mostly because that's what's expected of him. You know, he's got a more cultivated background. Joe wants to get into writing because that's what her love is, her passion is. Now, Joe's the first to meet Lori. Um, Lori, we learned, spent most of his early life in Europe. He's quite educated and cultivated, but he's also kind of moved around a lot and had a kind of disrupted childhood. So he's a little rough on the edges, even though he knows the proper ways to speak and to act. His father was an American and his mother was an Italian. So he's moving in with his grandfather, right? His dad's dad into his house. Both of his parents died and he moved in with his grandfather, who's rich. Lori's being schooled at home by his tutor, John Brooke. John Brooke will be important because he's going to marry. He's going to marry Meg uh, by the, you know, by the midpoint of this novel. And he's going to be th really, through Little Men at least, an important character. Lori will be even more of an important character in the novel, posing as this love interest for most of the March girls at one point or another, either in reality or, or in rumor. I think he first catches the eyes of like of Meg, and then he really gets close with Joe, and everyone thinks that that's going to happen. But Joe thinks maybe Beth's better for him. And in fact, he ends up marrying Amy. So kind of all the girls are tossed in as a possible match for Lori at one point but most readers are going to think it's it should be coming at it for the first time should think it should be Joe and Lori I would guess although it's hard not to you know we, we most people now know this story and have kind of grown up with it so you'd have to read it fresh to think maybe you know read it to my daughter someday and see what she thinks about it his personality is actually closest to Joe in that um, that while he has a very formal upbringing, he's also very free-spirited, and Joe's, of course, very much a tomboy. Next, chapter four, Burdens. Now, this chapter is kind of about Christmas holiday ending, and everyone's sad about that, but we learn more about the girls as they return to their normal lives after the holiday festivities end. Meg works outside of the Marsh home. She has to babysit the King children. So that's kind of how she brings in some money to the family. She has to take on this responsibility. Joe has a job too. There, there's like a rich aunt that lives nearby in this huge house. Everyone else is dead except Aunt Aunt Marsh. She's the one person in the Marsh family who still has money. And her Joe's job is basically to read to her. And Joe likes this because there's a lot of books there and she can read these books, even if they're boring. And she doesn't always like what Aunt Marsh has her read. But there's plenty for Joe to kind of cultivate her mind uh, with Aunt Marsh. So we find jobs that match what these girls are going to be. Right? So Meg is babysitting and she's the first to have kids. And Joe is going to be a writer and she's around books. Amy, she has to, or Beth has to go back to work too. She helps her mother out at the home because she's quite shy. And then Amy is going to school. And throughout much of the novel, she's going to be learning. She's going to be the learner of the group. And she's, her learning is never quite presented as complete, at least not in Little Women. Now, they complain about their lives. And they, they you know, as anyone maybe after a long holiday doesn't want to go back to their work, they, they grumble about this. And their mother gives the girls a lesson in accepting and cherishing um, 
what they had and not not and to, not to be too burdened by the poverty that they're facing in the short term. Next, chapter five, being neighborly. So actually what we get now is a bunch of vignettes. We get a series of chapters in which we know more about different girls um, and their relations with other people nearby. In the first one, we get being neighborly. This is mostly about Joe coming to become friends with the Lawrence family. She's already met Lori, but now she's going to meet kindly Mr. Lawrence. Now, I think an important theme introduced in this chapter is the importance of intergenerational friendship. Mr. Lawrence and Joe learn a lot about each other and they learn a lot about both families and they gain something from this relationship that they, they cultivate. And this, this is sustained through the generations. It's not a like one-time, short-term, capitalistic kind of exchanging of favors. It's, it's a relationship that's cultivated and becomes very important to everyone. Uh, to both sides of it, at least. Now, despite coming from different class status, the Marsh were well off and kind of at a decline. Lawrence has stayed rich. But they both contribute to the relationship in something that's going to be mutual and be beneficial throughout the, really throughout the whole trilogy. Um, where do I got? There's a nice quote here in this chapter. Quote, if the, if the Lawrences had been what Joe called prim and pokey she would not have got on at all for such people were made her shy and awkward but finding them free and easy she was so herself and made a good impression when they rose she proposed to go but Lori said she had something more to show her and they took her away to the conservatory which had been lightened up for her benefit it seemed quite fairy-like to joe as she went up and down the walls enjoying the blooming walls on either side the soft light the damp sweet air and the wonderful vines and trees hung above her while her new friend cut the finest flowers till his hands were full. And he tried them up, saying with the happy look Joe liked to see, Please give this to your mother, and I'll tell her I like the medicine she sent me very much. End quote. So yeah, it's it's a favor of exchange described here. An exchange of favors. But these two families are going to give to each other freely throughout all three of these novels, and it's going to be a big, big deal. But I think most importantly is, you know, Mr. Lawrence likes Joe because he kind of likes her spirit and who she is. And Joe likes Lawrence's library. And they realize they can learn from each other. And I, and I think in our day, especially with public education, where everyone's kind of classed into these ages and, and educated in groups based on their age, this kind of still tends to limit the interaction kids have with adults who aren't teachers or parents or maybe parents of friends or something. But, you know, they're and I guess now we're all, everyone's so anxious and overprotective of their kids and who they interact with. And there's maybe good reasons to be worried about some things. But I think we lose out on, on relationships that, that cross uh, the age gap. And I, I think younger people growing up today who don't have those experiences maybe miss out a little bit. Next, chapter six, Beth finds the palace beautiful. So... so just in the same way that being neighborly was about Joe and the Lawrences, this is about Beth and the Lawrences. Each girl's going to get their moments in this novel, but Beth, to me, is one of the least well-developed. And in some ways, she exists more to die and to transform Joe in the process of her dying. Uh, she's always presented as kind of being in the house, being sick all the time. She never is really the one that's never able to develop her talents and her abilities in any kind of public way. 
Um, Meg does it through her marriage, of course, but Joe becomes a writer. Amy becomes a talented artist. It, it, Beth's a talented musician, but nothing really comes of it partially because she dies. And maybe that's partially Alcott's point that, you know, talent is sometimes squandered because life is fragile. And that's just, just unfortunate. But this is one of those moments that Beth really shines. Uh, in fact, I think Little Men is much worse on this. There's a few interesting characters in Little Men that Alcott introduces really tantalizingly and then ignores. And then literally she, she kills off some of them before getting to Joe's boys because she doesn't really know what to do with them. And it's, I'll get to that when I when we look at Little Men and Joe's boys. But at least here Beth has her has her chapters. And this is one of them. She's very shy and is very frustrated by the family's poor, out-of-tune and bad-sounding, badly-sounding pianos. This is a really bad old piano. The Lawrences, though, have an unused piano, I think more than one, in really good condition. So she sneaks into the house to play it, and instead of being angry, Lawrence is overjoyed, overjoyed to hear music coming from the piano again. He's lost his son, his grand, one of his grandchildren who liked to play the piano died, and he misses this contribution that these young people bring to the house. So Beth's, it's Beth's parallel chapter to being neighborly, neighborly. But what it does is it, it shows there's like an open door here uh, that the Lawrences want to have the Marshes in, in their life. Chapter seven is about Amy. So we hear from Amy, the youngest Marsh da daughter. At this point, the only one we really don't get a good chapter with is, is Meg. But she'll get her, her, her I think she's next, actually, um, or a little bit later. Chapter 9, maybe. I won't get there today, but next time we will. Uh, this one's about Amy. So this this whole business with the limes, the pickled limes, may be hard for people to understand now, but, you know, this was before there was a lot of candy and where candy was so cheap. And, you know, there weren't much available for sweets. So pickled limes was what people would have. I've never had one. Um, they probably just sound like they want, probably very sharp sound but they would have been like kind of hard candy kind of things that people would chew on pickles so they would have been small I don't know but the, the girls at, at Amy's school kind of share these pickles limes around and hand them out to friends and things it's a way of showing favor to the people you like she wants to give these back but she has no money so she gets some money from Meg and she buys these limes and she wants to hand these out, but eventually I think the teacher finds them and these are forbidden in the class and she's punished, punished physically. She's forced to stand in front of the classroom and she's hit on the hand. And here we, of course, have Alcott's starting to comment on education. Her father wrote a book on education, which I haven't read. I really don't know what's in it, but, you know, he was a reformer. So we can kind of guess what he would have said about it coming from the transcendentalist tradition. But as a result of this incident, Amy is taken out of her school and she's going to learn at home with Beth, at least for the short term. Now, Mrs. Marsh doesn't say the teacher was wrong fully. She, she says she's a bad teacher and she doesn't approve of corporal punishment. But the fact that Amy was punished isn't wrong. It's just how she was punished, which they take offense to. So she says, yeah, you, you, you were told not to bring limes and you did it anyways. That's wrong. And just because your friends do it doesn't mean you don't get to, you know, doesn't mean you don't have to follow the rules. But at the same time, beating the kid on the hand was too much. So um, they take her out of the school. Then we get chapter eight. Chapter eight, Joe meets Apollonin. So this is about the relationship between Joe and Amy. Joe refuses to let Amy play with her and Lori. 
in response, Amy's very put out. Now, this is the, always happens to the younger kids sometimes, right? Where the younger kid doesn't have anyone to play with and wants to hang out with the older kids. But the older kids are kind of doing more older kid stuff and don't always want the younger kid hanging around. So Joe says, bug off. We don't want you here. And Amy gets very mad, so she burns one of Joe's manuscripts. And they have a big fight and a big dust up over it. And I think Joe says, like, I'll never forgive you. Later on, they're going to go out ice skating, I think, on a pond or nearby lake or something. And Lori says, well, you can't. The ice is too thin. And Joe doesn't tell this message to Amy. And so Amy goes onto the ice and it breaks. She falls through. And, you know, Joe really doesn't know what to do. And eventually Lori saves her. So Lori comes in and saves the day. Now, that, you know, I think this is a bit unrealistic. You know, I think it's pretty hard to survive this kind of thing. But anyways, it's there to show the consequences of this fight that developed between Joe and, and Amy. And the end lesson at the end of this chapter is about anger and how to, how we let it ruin relationships and how we shouldn't. And Mrs. Marsh gives this long discussion about how she's a very angry person. And she says, you know, I'm angry all the time, but you got to you can't let that kind of control your life and ruin your friendships. That, that's the lesson of that chapter. So we already see some important themes to this novel. I know I normally hold off the themes to the end, but you know, let's, let's keep track of a few of the important ones. One is dealing with loss. Most American families lost children during, during, and, and at some point. And during the Civil War, many families lost adult members unexpectedly, or maybe not unexpectedly, but unwantedly. No, who, no one wants to lose family members, of course. But it was a common experience. But certainly the loss of a child is a lot. It happens a lot. Now, we, you know, it's already foreshadowed early on that Beth is sickly and shy and doesn't leave the house. So she's she's sort of doomed. But we have other characters here who experience loss. Uh, everyone in the Marsh family has lost this father, at least potentially. And Lawrence has lost a son and a granddaughter. No characters here are really immune from this loss. We have Aunt May, or Aunt March, March in the big house, who's all alone because everyone else around her has died. So lost is going to be a big theme here, and it led to the choice of my bumper. But another major theme here is individualization. Alcott develops each girl in her own way with unique characteristics. Yeah, there are didactic moments, but they're based on the individual needs and specific experiences of the girls, not general rules passed on by authoritative figures. Adults are shown as flawed. Mrs. Marsh is angry. Lawrence is cagey at first and not fully honest all the time. A little too proper uh, to be as warm as he really is. Mrs. Mr. Marsh, who we don't meet, calls his daughters little women and therefore seems to imagine a path for them that's different from what the girls end up wanting and creates kind of this universal path, like my little women. He groups them all together. Now, he's a good guy at the end of the day, but again, that's not Alcott's point. He's not trying to say there's good people and bad people. They're, there's, they're flawed. The adults are flawed, just as the girls are. So a top-down kind of didactic message is, you know, is contingent on the fact that these adults are flawed themselves. And I think that's why it's so important that Marsh says, I give you this lesson, not because I know better, because I read it in a book or something I know because I am also angry or I also know what it's like to be lazy or I know what it's like to feel that you know feel upset and frustrated at being poor you know or I miss daddy too Th these are 
the lessons. Um, and they're based on her own flaws. Amy's teacher is cruel and stupid, right? Um, adults and children, though, can still talk to each other. They talk to each other as individuals, not as groups and classes and things like that. Now, the final theme we might see right away is the importance of sharing and generosity and community. It comes off in some way in every chapter. And the very first thing the girls do is pool their resources to give their mother a present. The next chapter, they give some of their breakfast to the poor Germans living nearby. Uh, Lawrence gives a piano to Beth to play with. Uh, Lori set, risks his life to save Amy. So we get these um, giving and generosity really comes off on almost every page. So that's certainly another lesson in the early part of this novel. Well, that does it for the first 100 pages of Louisa May Elcott's Little Women. Now, tell me what you thought of this novel. Have you seen any of the adaptations? Do you have any experiences reading this novel as a child? Have you come back to it as an adult and, and looked at it with new eyes? Let me know. Leave your comments or, or share this or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next part of the story, winter is going to give way to spring and summer, but tragedy threatens the family and how it's going to end up and how these these girls are going to deal with deeper and deeper into a year without their father is all going to be explored. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time with the next hundred pages of, of Little Women. But a golden cord is severed And our hopes in ruin lie We shall meet, but we shall miss him there will be one vacant chair we shall live.